Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Duff Differently. I'm Miri Fenton, and today we'll be learning Givamot Duff Yud. This Duff comes in the middle of a long and complicated sugya that spans many pages of the first parish of Yivamot. A machloket on one specific case on the second side of Duff Yud can give us some important insights into the flexibility of halachic categories in the Talmud. The two approaches of Reish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan to this case reveal vastly different approaches to the category of erva and teach us something about the relationship between halachic case studies and the definitional categories that play therein. First, a little bit of background. What is an erva? In this context, an erva is a woman forbidden to a man for the purposes of a sexual relationship because of their relationship by blood or through marriage. Examples include a man's mother and his sister. Specifically relevant to the case on Yuvamot Yud's bet is the wives of a man's brother. They are ervas to him. However, there is an important exception to this specific erva. Because of the explicit commandment given in Deuteronomy to build the house of your brother if he dies without children, a man's sisters-in-law, i.e. the wives of a man's deceased brother, can become not erva if the deceased brother died without any children. The man's remaining brothers then have two options. Either one of the brothers can marry her by performing yibum, Leverite marriage, or one of them can perform chalitza, as detailed in Deuteronomy 25.9. Both of these options exempt all parties from the obligation to the deceased brother. These options of yibum and chalitza are complicated by two factors pertinent to our case. First, it is possible for a man to have multiple brothers, and so multiple possible men could be obligated to marry the woman who is widowed by the childless man. Second, the childless man may have had more than one wife. The other wives are referred to in the Gemara as co-wives. However, only one act of yibum or chalitza is required. So this means that when one man from a set of eligible brothers performs either yibum or chalitza, on one of the co-wives, all other potentially relevant parties, brothers and co-wives, are exempted from their obligations. So what are the specifics of our case here on Yuvamot Dafyud? The case at issue here is that of a woman, let's call her Jane, whose husband died without any children. Her dead husband's brother, let's call him Martin, who lived at the same time as his brother, performed Khalitza on Jane with Within the world of Yibum, everything so far is looking pretty good. Because of this act of Chalitza, none of Jane's other co-wives and none of Martin's other brothers have to engage in Yibum or Chalitza, as we previously explained. In fact, they are forbidden from doing so. This is because all the co-wives, except from Jane, are still in the category of Erva for all potentially eligible brothers. The key complication of our case is what happens next. Having performed Chalitza with his Yevama, Jane, Martin then, Chazar the Kidsha, he returned and married her. 
This act of returning to marry Jane, Martin's Chalutza, is problematic for several reasons that the Gemara discusses. It is important to note here that part of the reason the Sugya and Yevamot is so complicated is that many factors, halachic categories, are involved in discussing each of several cases presented in the Gemara, even though not all of the factors are explicitly stated in each example given. This means that many halachic categories are at play in discussing each case. Singling out only one category to focus on is necessary to see how different opinions approach that single category, but also simplifies all the opinions at play. But bearing that in mind, here I will focus on Jane's status after Martin performed Chalitza with her. Because the two opinions of, Rabbi, of Reish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan indicate something important about the nature of the category of Erva. When Martin returns to marry Jane, two options exist for her status, and by extensions, two options for the category, for the operation of the category of Erva in this instance. First, let's deal with the opinion of Reish Lakish. Reish Lakish holds that the ceremony of Chalitza takes Jane out of a category of Erva and puts her into a category of Isur. This is, this is based on the opinion that having performed Chalitza, a woman re-enters into the category of Erva and is therefore forbidden to the man who performed Chalitza with her. However, on the opinion of Reish Lakish, if Jane is now an Isur to Martin rather than an Erva, Jane is still forbidden to Martin, but if Martin marries her, he will not be subject to the death penalty of Karit, because this only applies to women who are Erva. Instead, Jane is now under the category of women that is forbidden by an Isur, a prohibition. This means that now Jane is forbidden not because of the inherent nature of, the, of her relationship with Martin, a link of blood or of family, but rather because of a legal technicality, in this case because Martin performed Chalitza. This change of Jane's status from Erva to Isur forces Reish Lakish to distinguish and differentiate between the relationship of Martin to Jane in particular and the relationships of all of Jane's co-wives and all potentially eligible brothers in general. For Reish Lakish, the Khalitza that has taken place transforms only Jane's specific relationship with Martin. All the other co-wives then remain Erva to all Martin's living brothers. However, this may be problematic for understanding the category of Erva. If Jane exempts all her co-wives from Yibum and Khalitza when she performs either Yibum or Chalitza with one of a potential set of brothers, how can she then have a different status from the co-wives that she exempted? Reish Lakish's opinion assumes that Jane and Martin have a relationship that is constructed on the grounds of the Chalitza ceremony both participated in. Jane and Martin must therefore have some agency over Jane's legal status, as she has become legally prohibited, an Isur, but inherently, essentially permissible, i.e. she is no longer Erva. On the opinion of Reish Lakish, how the legal category of Erva is applied can change depending on what individuals happen to do in a legal framework. Where we assume that an Erva designates the inherent status of individuals, we might draw out from Reish Lakish's opinion that our legally binding actions can in fact change one's inherent legal status. Perhaps it is the cent this central tenet of Reish Lakish's opinion that Rabbi Yochanan argues against in the continuation of this stuff. Rabbi Yochanan argues that the change in Jane's status from Erva to Isur 
precisely because of the fact that Martin performs the agency of all the brothers and Jane performs the agency of all the co-wives cannot in fact take place. On this view, it is impossible for Jane to act on behalf of all her co-wives and simultaneously exist in a different legal category from them. Instead, for Rabbi Yochanan, either Jane and all her co-wives are treated as an Isur, or all of them must be treated as Erva to both Martin and all of his brothers. An assumption underlying this opinion of Rabbi Yochanan is that the nature of the category of Erva must continue to be defined as an inherent factor of the relationships between people, i.e. inherent to each individual self. Rather than Erva applying differently in different circumstances because of legal contracts that people have entered into individually, Rabbi Yochanan uses Erva to denote funda the fundamental feature of a woman's availability, or lack thereof, to a nearby man. Though we might think that the Gemara treats the category of Erva as one that exists unproblematically, because it uses the category of Erva to define its relationship to legal cases, in fact, from the Machloket between Reish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan, we can learn that the very nature of Erva is not in fact settled. Is Erva something inherent to the woman, defined by her relationships to a man through blood or marriage? Or is Erva the status legally of a woman, something that can be changed if she willfully enters into a different legal status by performing Khalitza? This question is important because the opinion of Reish Lakish opens the possibility that the question of whether a woman is Erva, i.e. if she is inherently forbidden, can be defined on the basis of a legal relationship she enters into, rather than, in fact, than by factors inherent to the relationship between the two parties in question. We often think that the categories, that, hala, that halakha operates in categories that are entirely fixed, and that specific case studies are brought to test, push, and solidify the boundaries of those categories. But the opinion of Rosh Lakish on this stuff implies that the very notion of Erva is being worked out by exploring the options presented, the hypothetical options, in different specific cases. We are pushed, by reading this Machloket, to recognise the potential for dynamism in legal categories found in the Talmud. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.